Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Welcome to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. I'm your host, Don Payne. And before we dive into our current episode, I want to let you know that this is actually our 100th episode. And we're deeply grateful for the opportunity to have had an incredible array of conversations about an equally impressive diversity of topics over the past three years or so since we began. Whether you've been listening to us from the very beginning or picked up with us somewhere along the way, I hope you've found something in our interviews that encourages you, something that prompts you to deeper learning about a subject, something that gives you some theological perspective, and something that resources you to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture, because that's our mission here at Denver Seminary. So thanks for investing some of your valuable time with us, hopefully on a regular basis. If you're a current student at Denver Seminary, uh, frankly, I'm impressed that you would take the time to listen to yet another voice from the seminary. But really, I hope that you find this to be a meaningful and helpful uh, augmentation to your studies. If you're a graduate of Denver Seminary, I hope this is a meaningful way for you to stay connected to your alma mater. If you're a supporter of Denver Seminary, thank you for your generosity in helping us continue our mission. And if you have another kind of relationship with us or simply heard about us, we want to serve you as well, wherever you are in the world and whatever God has given you to do to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture in your place. So please communicate with us if you have comments, questions, or suggestions. Our email address is podcast at denverseminary.edu. Before we get into our 100th episode, I want to say a special word of thanks to Andrea Wayand, our Senior Director of Communications, for her wise and strategic guidance of our themes and our guests, and to Krista Ebert, who faithfully and and oh-so-competently records and edits each episode. I really wish that you could meet these delightful colleagues of mine and enjoy them personally, but at least you get to benefit from their incredible gifts. So with all that, here's our latest conversation. Thanks again for listening, friends. Hello again, friends from Denver Seminary. You know, from from tweets to talk shows, uh, from published monographs to memes, media of every sort these days are charged with inflammatory exchanges, uh, at the core of which are powerful assumptions and powerful values about what it means to be a citizen of the United States. Now, that's true of other nations as well, but the American version of it seems to be pretty intense right now and, and garners lots of international attention right now, for good or for ill. And these, these assumptions and these values are sometimes explicit and they're sometimes implicit in all types of controversies, but these assumptions and values drive the conversations uh, all the same. So the question we want to entertain today is what does it mean to be a citizen, particularly a faithful and loyal citizen of this country? Now, if we isolate our focus on confessing Christian communities, both conservative and progressive, we frequently see the um, intriguing phenomenon of those national commitments being aligned with or being assumed to be synonymous with Christian faith commitments. And that kind of sets the stage for a discussion we want to have today about the subject of nationalism. 
And our guest for that discussion has recently written a, a quite bold book on the subject, looking at nationalism through the lens of the gospel. Uh, David Ritchie is our guest and is the author. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Payne. I'm honored to be with you today. Uh, David's book, which we will dive into here in just a moment, is entitled, Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origins or Origin of Nationalism. Why Do the Nations Rage? Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll dive into this. Uh, first, let me introduce you to David a little bit more. David is the lead pastor at Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, and uh, as a sidebar, let me, I'm going to put in a little plug uh, for Amarillo, uh, those of you who may know Amarillo know where it is. Um, some of you listeners in different parts of the country may know nothing about Amarillo. Uh, many have probably driven through it, and I know from many of the folks in Amarillo, they're accustomed to people going through Amarillo, but not to Amarillo. I think that's safe to say, isn't it, David? Isn't that kind of the the, the line in the region? I believe so. We're basically the gateway to the Colorado Rocky Mountains for most of Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, I love uh, Amarillo, and would really encourage any of you who happen to be driving through there on I forty to stop because you get to know the city, and it really is a great place. They have a, a surprisingly good food scene. I mean, it's kind of a little foodie town, in my estimation. They've got, a, they've got a great coffee scene there. Um, just lots of uh, lots of good stuff going on there in the middle of the high plains in the Texas Panhandle. Um, David, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry at Redeemer uh, Christian Church. Certainly, I-, I love this city. I love Amarillo, Texas. This is where I was born and raised. This is where my family's from. On one side of my family, I actually go back five generations, uh, which is about just as long as there have been permanent settlements in yeah. this part of the country. Yeah, you're right. And so it's a, it's a place that I hold near and dear to my heart, and uh, I became a Christian a little bit later in life, actually, as I was in college. And as I began to discern a call to ministry, one of the, the later things that woke up was just a, a true desire to love, to serve this community, and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ um, where, where the Lord has placed me. And I have the privilege of pastoring a church named Redeemer Christian Church. Originally, it was planted as West Amarillo Christian Church in 1920. It's huh. uh, an older congregation, and uh, through the course of years, it, it had successes. It was a successful church-planting church, a, a vibrant church at one point in time, but then it did go through a period of decline and decay. And so I, I became what we call a church replanter, mm-hmm. and I got to see the, the extraordinary journey of seeing a church that was truly on the verge of death come to life yet again, um, to be able to flourish and by God's grace, be able to not just grow, but to be able to be a blessing to this city. And so um, I I love this church. I've been here for a little bit more than 10 years. So we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary in uh, 2021 in November, and um, we have a lot of evidences of God's grace with us. Yeah, yeah, you do. And and I'll say I've, um, I've visited your congregation and worshiped there and would really encourage listeners anytime they happen to be in Amarillo to to stop in and, and worship at Redeemer. Uh, I think you'll be, uh, you'll be blessed. You really will. So, uh, David, you have published this book on nationalism. And while wow, there's just a lot to talk about here, but maybe in a general sense, first, what, what prompted you to write this book? Because it is a pretty bold argument. It is, and it is also a sincere argument. It's a work that I consider to be a, a piece of pastoral theology, Uh, Essentially, 
doing ministry in West Texas um, over the course of the years, I've I've seen just a a growing sense of really political extremism. And something that began to, to change in my heart, especially as we underwent the all the pressures that the pandemic and that that season of um, just political division really exposed in us was this this tendency that I was finding disturbing among people who are professed Christians but nevertheless they, they seem to be more animated and passionate about issues of politics and the kingdom of man um, as opposed to the gospel um, so much so that I was noticing this this disturbing feature in my community where I would just notice people that I love people that are my neighbors people that are my friends more passionately and more naturally be able to argue for and persuasively present a, a vision for a kingdom of man but nevertheless seem to be I felt like noticeably silent on on matters of the gospel, and uh, essentially that same level of passionate for Christ and his kingdom seemed to not be very present. But as that situation began to emerge and merge, I I began to um, complete my master's level thesis project, and I decided to essentially ask the question, what can Christian theology and what can um, the Word of God essentially – allow us to see about nationalism and this phenomenon of nationalism that might not be as easily seen through the more typical lenses of study, um, for example, historical studies or political science or the field of sociology. And so I essentially wanted to ask the question of how can we be able to furnish or at least begin to furnish biblical categories and theological categories to be able to understand this very fascinating and this very um, impactful phenomenon that is such an animating force in our world. Yeah, that's that's well said. Now, um, uh, clearly, we're going to have to define some terms here as we go, so it, it will loop back to that in a moment. But uh, let, let me kind of read a brief excerpt from the early part of your book. Um, you may want to comment on this because it really sets the stage for your book. You say, I write about nationalism because my experience as a pastor in the West Texas wilderness has led me to believe that nationalism— not atheism, not New Age spiritualism, not any other traditional world faith. It's the greatest religious uh, rival of the Christian gospel for the um, uh, worship of the people whom I love and serve in my congregation, my broader community, and increasingly my nation. So um, you're seeing nationalism, again, we'll, we'll have to define some terms here, but you're seeing this as intrin- intrinsically uh, hostile, antithetical to life in the gospel. Is that yes, sir? That fair. And in fact, what I would say is, you know, a lot of this goes back to um, a, a reading that I recently did of um, a significant piece of theology, Dre Gresham Machen's um, Christianity and Liberalism. And what I so appreciated about his critique is he was noticing that there are aspects of, of theological liberalism that utilize Christian language. And Christian doctrines, Christian terminology, but they're then loaded with and packed with non-Christian ideas. And, and so basically they, they use the suitcase, if you will, of the packaging of Christian language, Christian ideas to be able to import something else that is fundamentally something different than the gospel. And as I was reading that and asking the question, you know, 100 years later after Machen wrote, um, you know, I wonder what that would be. What what is like Christianity and uses Christian language but is not Christianity? And as soon as I asked the question, what my pastoral experience has formulated me to, to answer almost immediately 
is it's it's nationalism or what we would now call Christian nationalism when it when it kind of takes on a Christian veneer at least. Okay. And, and so I, I wanted to essentially unpack that and, and be able to describe in some ways how Christianity and nationalism are are not just incompatible, but they really are rival religions. And in mm. one of the key arguments of the book is that I do believe that nationalism is better understood as a species of religion as opposed to a, a merely political ideology. Okay. All right. Well, uh, some terms now. So when, when you use the the word nationalism, wh- how are you defining that, and how does that compare to patriotism? I do early on make a key distinction between the terms nationalism and patriotism. And and that's not a distinction that I make. That is a distinction that is really evident even in nationalism studies and the body of literature that is written on nationalism. And and so if we're going to try to maybe take a more theological or particularly Augustinian angle on this, I would describe patriotism as a good thing. It is a rightly ordered love for one's nation. It is a, a stewardship of the privilege of citizenship that we have in this nation. It is the ability to express on a public level love for one's neighbor that happens to be in in this community of people that we define as a nation. Nationalism, on the other hand, is when that good love, when that natural love becomes distorted, when it twists into something that is idolatrous. And of course, any good thing that we exalt to an ultimate thing becomes an idol. It becomes something that essentially robs our worship and devotion that should be unto the Lord and and begins to take it for itself. And nationalism is not just a form of idolatry, but it's something I would like to argue is one of the most enduring and alluring forms of idolatry that has existed throughout human history. Okay, enduring because you see it in almost every human time period? Exactly. Yeah. In fact, I, I would be of the perspective, and there's, of course, um, scholars that have different opinions on this. I, I see nationalism as a phenomenon that is deeply ancient in its roots, um, not not just from a biblical standpoint, but even from just a, a purely historical standpoint. There is this alluring capacity and this temptation to accord to the state uh, a sense of divinity a sense of ultimate value, and to conflate allegiance and devotion to the state with something that is more akin to worship rather than just simply um, a natural devotion uh, to one's nation and neighbors. You um, you develop that in the book a bit, um, but for our listeners, maybe tease that out just a little bit. How do you see that ex- getting expressed? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I do later on in this section of my book is I essentially take the major categories of the Apostles' Creed, um, which furnish for us some of the, the the basic furniture of Christian theology, some of the major doctrines that seem to cut across um, all of the, the traditions of um, the historic Christian church. And so what I argue is that nationalism in its variegated and myriad forms will almost always attempt to utilize the categories of the Christian gospel and then use it for its own advantage, okay? And so, in fact, some of the research that I'm working on right now uh, relates to particularly how how redundant and how consistently different nationalist movements attempt to use messianic characterizations to be able to promote a, a leader or a certain type of leader for mm-hmm. the nation. Mm-hmm. How 
I mean, from the pharaohs of old to ancient Sumerian kings to even the, the Caesars of Rome, there's this tendency to almost exalt these type of figures as someone who is both inherently God but also inherently man. Um, to bridge, you know, heaven and earth, kind of through this political figure. Um, there's even a tendency to even uh, view these great leaders as someone who is nobly suffering for and sacrificing for the nation. And and because of that, whenever we utilize messianic characterizations, anytime we're appealing to the category of Christology, it, it's not just eliciting a, a, a level of yes, I would like to follow this guy or to support this individual. It's inherently speaking to our religious affections. It's trying to evoke from us this greater level uh, of worship. And, and so one of the things just to be able to bring it down very specifically was I, I was very disturbed at how people were beginning to support President Donald Trump, not just as a president or as a political leader, but were beginning to even describe him in messianic terms, mm. um, using terms like the anointed one. Um, there, there was a painting that I examine and discuss in my book by an artist named John McNaughton called You Are Not Forgotten, and it's a painting of President Donald Trump standing in front of the White House. He's surrounded by members of law enforcement and the United States military, and he's standing in front of this, this couple, this blue-collar couple that are watering this plant that's coming out of dry ground. And as soon as you see the image of a, of a root or a plant coming out of dry ground, that's – that's a significant image um, because it comes from Isaiah chapter 53. But even more significant is the fact that as the president stands there, his foot is on the head of a snake mm. that apparently he has vanquished. And as soon as you see something like that, uh, alarm bells go off on me as a pastor showing that this is crossing a line into something that's far more than just political adherence to a certain set of policies. This is ascribing messianic status, um, Christological import to support of one's president. And, and that means that when we impute some level of doctrine to a, a physical person, a lot of times it comes with more. And so all the time, all the time uh, this person might even become infallible, um, someone that's not able to err in our minds. And it, and it elicits from um, the follower a sense of devotion that is best described as religious. And, and that's something that I see as as competing um, with the devotion and the allegiance that is rightly due to Jesus Christ. That, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, as I think about probably any any Christian I know, they would never say that, you know, a public official, president or otherwise is actually divine. Uh, they would, they, as far as I know, they would never say that um, what they look to from the nation, the state, is salvific. But I think what you're pointing out, uh, David, is that there are certain kinds of theological impulses that get, uh, or chords that get strummed uh, along the lines of those those grand doctrines. Um, so, you know, when you talk about messianic language being used and um, uh, kind of messianic images, and for us looking looking toward either leaders or parties or ideologies to do for us some of the things that should feel the same way as only God can what only God can do for us. Then you're arguing that we're 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 blurring that line and we're starting to cross over. Absolutely, I, is that fair? 
Yes, sir. And, and the thing about idolatry is a lot of times you're not aware that you're engaging in it. Um, oh, yeah. Idols are seductive. Yeah, well, it's what, yeah um, that's what makes them so powerful, right? They, they mask. Exactly. And, and a lot of times, too, it's, it's in a reaction to a greater fear. And so one of the things mm. that was really fascinating to me was studying a lot of nationalist movements in the lead up to World War II and, and how oftentimes like a guy like Benito Mussolini, who receives actually the support and the sanction of the Roman Catholic Church, he receives that support. Um, and he, there's even a, a pope of the time, I believe it was Pius XI, that described him as a man who was sent by God's providence. Um, the reason they accorded that to him is because at the time, his political ideology was the best opponent, if you will, of Marxism that was on the rise across Europe. Um, there were a lot of nations at that time, including Germany, that were really afraid that um, something like the Bolshevik Revolution could happen in their own nations just due to the economic stability, instability that was around at the time. And what ends up happening is when we look for this human champion – um, to be the person that we're going to get behind to go towards this I instead of evaluating the political spectrum as something that is going to have problems on either side and needs to be critiqued distinctly from a Christian angle, no matter what the political ideology is going to be. It, it gets us to put all of our eggs in one basket mm. and then conflate that political mission with the mission of the kingdom of God. Okay. You know, you, the... Um... The subtitle of your book, which is The Demonic Origin of Nationalism, uh, reflects a, a pretty key theme in your book, which is power. Yes. Um, and you develop this, at, I thought, in a very interesting way, uh, particularly how um, power and what Scripture and you call the powers, how those function in ideologies like nationalism. That's right. Um, I, I was really captured by that uh, because you know it's it's not uncommon in some Christian circles to to talk about spiritual warfare, spiritual powers. Um, uh, you're a reformed guy, <laughs> and yeah. um, I, I don't hear reformed guys talk about that all that much. Now that may be my own my own narrowness and limitations, but. Uh, I, I don't hear many in the Reformed tribe talk about the spiritual powers the way you have. But um, let me quote a little bit from your book and have you comment on these, uh, if you, you would. You, you say, while the condition of spiritual death and darkness via the dominion of the powers is universal to all who are outside Christ, Paul also sees the powers playing a role in cultivating communal identities among people of various cultures. The powers captivate people groups within bounds of their nationality and ethnicity through the means of what Paul calls the stoicheia, a term that Paul uses only in conjunction with the powers. And you, you go on and develop that um, in a number of ways. But, yeah, I'm just curious um, to have you uh, outline that a little bit, how you see nationalism uh, in the ways you've described it, uh, functioning as the the instrument of spiritual powers yes sir so i do choose the apostle paul's doctrine of powers um or principalities and powers might be more common to people that that comes from the king james version mm -hmm. uh, of that translation yeah. typically uh we we see in the more modern translations the terms rulers and authorities right, and right. essentially i i'm asking the question what do these terms mean 
what's the intellectual history behind them and how might they form a conceptual framework or a bridge for we how we might understand at least some aspect of that very spiritual agency and aspect that seems to be so such an animating force in something like nationalism and, and essentially I do think you're correct, Dr. Payne, on, in the sense that for a lot of Protestant theology post-Enlightenment, um, demonology is somewhat of a of an neglected subject. Um, yeah. I, I've heard it said by one author, you know, after the Enlightenment, we had barely enough room for the doctrine of God, let alone <laughs> angels and demons. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think that there's actually this huge category in the Bible that actually helps us understand the nature of reality. And from a, a biblical standpoint, of we believe the Word of God is true. We believe it's authoritative. If we're missing some avenue of understanding the nature of reality, we, we really are not seeing the full picture. And so as I began to study particularly what the powers were up to, maybe in a book like Ephesians or Colossians, mm-hmm. one of the things that you see them consistently doing is they're trying to convince the, the Jew and the Gentile that they are not unified in Christ. Um, to in some ways convince them that their cultural identity or their their nationality deserves a higher level of allegiance and authority in their life than really their their place um, in Christ Jesus and together within the body of Christ. And as I began to kind of like go down that hole, I, I caught this thread of scholarship that goes deep into the Old Testament, showing how the, the powers have been absolutely active um, in the nations of the world. In fact, God essentially chooses um, Israel to be his holy people and saves you know, the family of Abraham out from the nation, calls them to be his vessel, his vehicle through which his plan of redemption will be launched into the world. However, the, the other nations do seem to be under this spiritual authority and uh, an oppression that causes them at times to be spiritually blind to the yeah, things yeah. of God. They're, they're not just acting on their own. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're an active source of injustice and perpetuating injustice among the nations of the world. And so where you see that really active is uh, particularly in the fact that much of these, especially ancient Near East um, nations, have national patron deities that they worship. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you're going to be a good Moabite, you better be worshiping Chemosh. If you're a good Ammonite, um, part of that identity as, as a part of your nationality means that you're someone that worships a god like Moloch. And, and so it becomes this really profound thing that happens when Jesus dies and he rises again, that the, the powers and the authority that they once held over the nations are delegitimized. Um, they are no more. And and it shows us this fascinating connection between the idols and the spiritual reality that surrounds us. And so in one sense, the idols are are dead. They're nothing but gold and silver. They're made with human hands, but they are connected to spiritual realities. That's mm-hmm. why Paul says that um, whenever we're you know essentially worshiping idols, we're having fellowship with demons. And so there is this spiritual agency that's behind this. And, and essentially what, what I see in this is there's not that much of a distinction between an ancient member of an ancient Near East society worshiping their national patron deity that is supposed to be the spiritual embodiment of their given nation and a modern nationalist that is basically worshiping their vision of a nation as their ultimate and their highest good with a sense of fervor and devotion and sacrifice. You know, the way I appreciate the way you said that, David, because when you, when you said worshiping their vision of a nation, that was a 
um, that was a pretty important distinction between worshiping a person because I, I, I think most American Christians would really stop short of saying, oh, yes, I worship a person. But, but, to, but to worship, I think um, the way you said it, to, to worship their vision of a nation is what ends up um, taking people to the same kind of place. Is that, is that accurate? I think that is accurate. It's essentially all, all the trappings of worship. And so it's, it is an interesting thing. For example, all the, the level of sacred accord that nations typically place in the treatment of their flags, how their flags are to be acknowledged, how their flags are to be um, appropriately um, appreciated in some yeah, sense, yeah. almost – betrays a, a sense of it's it's the same way that highly liturgical traditions would almost approach something like the Eucharist. Okay. Um, it has to be done the right way. Yeah, very specific um, protocols something for it. That it's it's imbued with a sense of uh, of a sacred reality um, that I think is is very significant and and I think that there's a power in these liturgical actions. Um, they are meant to stir our affections in a particular way, and I think that. Uh, Again, the, the whole point is not that devotion to one's nation is a bad thing or appreciation of our nation is a bad thing or to, to even promote a positive view of citizenship or national solidarity is a bad thing. It, it's when that love becomes disordered that something very nefarious happens, and it can lead people to do just absolutely horrific things um, in a way that they think they're doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and so it's simply um, a desire. What, what I want to put in place is – at least one argument that shows that this is an idol that has been throughout human history, and it's one that's led many people astray, and it's led a lot of people to do horrific things. And at times, this idol can even be presented in the veneer of the name of Jesus. And when that happens, um, we do need to be discerning, and we need to be careful, knowing that when we get near an idol like this, that it's it's greedy for our affection. It wants us to give it more devotion and allegiance than it's rightly merited, and and we have to be sensitive to those things as, as Christians and discerning, um, just in the sense that our highest worship, our highest devotion and allegiance belongs to Christ and his kingdom alone, and that just so happens to be that's the one kingdom that cannot be shaken because these kingdoms of man, they can be shaken, and they have been shaking for quite some time. Um, the the world around us is filled with chaos, and it's in that place that I I want to challenge people to have, you know, the the eyes of Isaiah, the prophet, who, when the nation is shaking, when things are going the way we don't want them to go, that we can have a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and, and seeing that that His glory really is the source of our most ultimate hope. Yeah, I really really appreciate that. I want to want to loop back just for a second because. Um, I, I hope <clears throat> I hope nobody kind of got stuck uh, on what you said about flag protocols and didn't hear mm-hmm. the the rest of what you said because um, I mean, w- would you would you say uh, or do, do you do you think that having protocols like that is is inherently wrong or is it dangerous I mean do we do we teach our children not to say the pledge of allegiance or engage flag protocols what how, how would you help people practically navigate some of that. Yeah, and there might be differing convictions on this particular thing. I don't think it's inappropriate to be able to have a value of our flag as a, as a symbol, right? Um, I think that it can we can do things on that 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 border some level of 
idolatry and worship at times, right? Um, I will say, having done this study, one thing that has probably changed in my mind and my heart is that it, I do believe that it's an odd thing that we do say a pledge of allegiance to the American flag. Mm-hmm. Um, that Because I do view that word allegiance as something that has a lot of power to it. Mm. Um, and so I, 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 you know, it's it, obviously we can't probably do a pledge of appreciation to the flag <laughs> or the appreciation to the country, but, yeah, but that's, it that's, really it's does, got no kick to it, does it? <laughs> it doesn't have the same kick to it, but <laughs> I, I will say that um, after having written this book and done all the study that goes into it, uh, I think it's, it is something that is significant that we actually say the word allegiance. Mm-hmm. And, and I would at least in my own heart want to clearly define exactly what that term means. Yeah, I, and I, th- I think one of the points, one of the takeaways from uh, what you're saying, David, is that we we ought at the very least to think about those words that we use and maybe assume and and throw around quite glibly. We we ought to think about mm-hmm. them because you know words mean things. Words matter. They words do things. Um, even even if we're not aware that they're doing them. Uh, you you use Paul's the Apostle Paul's experience in F, in Ephesus as a bit of a case study for how spiritual power gets embedded in particular cultures and in the practices of those cultures. How do you how do you think that speaks to what we see today in our own country? If there's anything additional beyond what you've already said. Yes, the the experience that Paul has in Ephesus, I think, is the case study of ministry in view of the the rulers and the authorities, the the powers, um, the the spiritual kind of um, beings in some sense that uh, that the gospel is contending with. And uh, essentially Artemis of of, of Ephesia is the main patron deity of the city of Ephesus. Um, One of the, the seven great wonders of the world, her temple is there, and there's a thriving tourist industry um, coming to visit and a thriving industry of idol makers that are uh, furnishing you know souvenirs and and idols selling that to people and essentially the the years that paul spends in ephesus are so profoundly fruitful that it begins to actually cause this one sector of the economy to crash and now that's so much so if, yeah, that, if i can interject just there that's that's an interesting indicator of the effectiveness of gospel ministry, isn't it? When it starts to exactly. mess with the local economy, you know something's going yes. on. And so it, it gets people's attention. And and Demetrius, this the silversmith who is is very much upset about this, organizes basically his silversmith guild and a lot of the people in Ephesus, and they they essentially throw this rally or this riot and. At this rally, they're they're shouting, you know, great is Artemis of Ephesia or great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I, I find that so fascinating that Demetrius's solution is not what better economic policy could we have or is there a better way of, you know, um, adding diversity to our city's economy. It really is a religious solution. And the, the whole idea um, that you can see in, you know, the, the Greco-Roman world is to be disloyal to a city's patron deity was to be a bad citizen. Mm. It was to be automatically under suspicion that you don't really belong here. You're not really one of us. And in fact, you might invite the wrath of God upon us um, if uh, if you keep on thinking the way that you do and you keep on not um, essentially offering tribute to the God that is over the city. 
But the gospel destroys all of that. You know, the gospel basically is bringing in people not just from a Jewish ethnic background, but from a Gentile back, ethnic background, and they're coming together. The Jew and the Gentile are becoming one. And in the words of Ephesians 3, that is a display of the manifold wisdom of God specifically to the powers. It is essentially Jesus showing his power, his might, and his ultimate spiritual authority. And and so I, I do think that it, it should be an active question that we should ask as pastors, as missionaries, as those that are trying to maybe look at our ministry context with a, with a sense of, uh, of this missiological lens of what are the active rulers and authorities um, of this place in a spiritual sense? What are the idols that people are drawn to worship in such a way that it is it is um, being worshipped in the way that only Christ should be worshipped. I think that gives us a level of insight in terms of some of the spiritual realities that are at play. And and it's cool what Paul does. Like, I mean, he's he's not doing a lot of things that you would typically associate with spiritual warfare. He's not doing a prayer walk. He, he's not, you know, going and, and, and doing anything other than simply declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowing the church of Ephesus to embody a way of life that is not possible outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. I mean, it really is the normal means of grace and the bold declaration of the gospel that is able to have this culture-changing effect on the city. And, and I think it's just something that we should have in our hearts and our minds is that, you know, the, these, these high places, these temples, these, um, you know, powers and principalities, they're, they're, they're around us. But Jesus's victory is so grand. It's so glorious that the gospel we proclaim is, is a light that shines in that darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Well, yeah, again, I, I just appreciate the way you've, you said and underscored all of that, David. And, you know, it may be one of the biggest challenges for many American Christians to um, to absorb, uh, just to realize that behind, well, because, let me back up, because of the, the kind of the dualistic worldview that is so common in post-Enlightenment Western cultures, um, where the, the whole spiritual realm is, is uh, either denied altogether, considered mythical, or um, just kind of relegated at best, uh, one one big learning, one big takeaway in all of this is is simply to be able to acknowledge that there are spiritual powers of darkness behind things that look very ordinary, very benign, um, and and that we assume to be often very good, and yet these Absolutely. things can be working at odds with with the gospel. Um, yeah. I'm curious what type of um, going to shift focus here just for a second as we start to wind down. What, what type of reactions and feedback have you received from your work since it was released? I can only I had, imagine it's it's stirred a lot. It has, and and honestly, for a, a a project or a book that was based off of a master's thesis, it's gotten a lot more attention and probably a lot more readership than I would have expected, and and that has everything to do with simply the timeliness of the topic. I think that nationalism and Christian nationalism are, are things that people hear those terms thrown around. Um, every It seems like every other week they're trending on Twitter or social media. Yeah. And, and so I think there's a lot of interest in trying to be able to understand what this thing is. A lot of conversation right now on just trying to define terms and understand them rightly. And I, I think that there is an interest in you know a pastor from West Texas trying to 
be able to understand this from a distinctly Christian theological and biblical standpoint. With that said, I, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised locally from the people who have actually read the book. Hmm. Um, I've received really, really positive feedback. I've also received some really angry, you know, random messages, yeah. um, email or Facebook, but it's usually never from someone who's actually taken the time to read what I'm saying. Um, because of our highly polarized partisan era that we live in right now, um, there's a lot more of an assumption about what I might be saying as opposed to what I'm actually saying. Because, I mean, the the title of the book is Incendiary, the Demonic Origin of Nationalism. Um, the the, the you know, central cover image is of the noose that was or the gallows that were erected on the Capitol grounds the day of January 6th. Yeah. And th- those are powerful images, but what I'm making is a rather sincere argument that I hope is actually persuasive to the very people that I most want to persuade. Um, and yes, that, that, that particular event on January 6th was associated with one side of the political spectrum, but I want to be very clear in, in saying that nationalism as a phenomenon is not something that is inherently associated only with the right side of the political spectrum. Hmm. In fact, many people would correctly say that Joseph Stalin was a nationalist, that he met the definition of what that was. And so it's not as much about an ideology uh, or one particular side of the political spectrum. It is all about when this becomes ultimate in our eyes. And usually when people are able to get over that hump, they're able to um, be able to receive that well. And so um, it seems like right now with the, the January 6th hearing happening right now that there's been a whole new wave of readership that has begun to be interested in this work. And I've been really pleasantly surprised um, to be able to find readers that are either in academia or in ministry that have interacted with it and interacted with it in a positive way. And so I, I look forward to more conversations and and more opportunities to be able to talk about this really important idea, but to talk about it in explicitly biblical and theological categories. I'm, I'm really glad of that, David. What, what kind of impact is it, has it had on your own congregation? For the most part, um, people have been remarkably supportive of it. Um, it it's something that, as a, as a pastor, this is not something that I have promoted in my own church. It's been something that was you know, completely separate. So it's like, we're not like doing like a why do the nations rage sermon series um, through <laughs> okay. um, anything at Redeemer Christian Church right now. I mean, we're just, we're just marching through Romans. And so um, people have read it and I've had members of the congregation read it and it, and it is academic. I mean, it's a little bit more of a kind of a thicker read, even though it's a shorter read. Um, but again, I've, I've received really, really positive comments um, from the people that have read it. I've had a few people that expressed concerns right when they first saw the the cover art, yeah, <laughs> um, right. which of course, you know, for people that yeah, have gone through the publishing process, um, you, you know, that's not necessarily something you control. Um, that's something that the publisher um, uh, ultimately decides. But I did feel like it was appropriate because the very first image of the book is essentially why is it? now that we're seeing Christians in America so associated with this phenomenon of nationalism? And why was it that some of the people that were bringing Jesus flags on that day also shouting in unison you know, to, to hang the vice president of the United States? I, I wanted to confront 
that very uncomfortable topic um, because it is something that I think is is worthy of our attention. And mm-hmm. so, um, so there, I'm not going to pretend like that there aren't people that were very disturbed that I wrote about this or had concerns, but. Um, by the grace of God, um, I, I think I've been able to earn a lot of trust, not just in my own congregation, but in the broader community. And um, because of that, people have given it, um, for the most part, a, a chance to actually read and engage the idea rather than just their you know, preconceived notion of what I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, well, you're right. There, There is a lot of uh, work being done right now in, uh, in different media outlets tr- uh, trying to get some, get some handles on this phenomenon of nationalism and Christian nationalism. And, and I think those are those are healthy and helpful conversations. And I've got to say, David, you've you've made a really thoughtful contribution to that overall conversation. And I would uh, really encourage listeners to uh, to engage your work and and think about it and to study it because you've you've done your homework. And um, th- this is a good and thoughtful contribution to, to what is a very turbulent and a very complex topic, but I think you are serving the church well by uh, helping us think about it in more than merely sociological and political um, terms, but to think about it through um, or in light of the gospel, to look at it through the lens of the gospel. And of course, that's what we want to be all about here at Denver Seminary. And so really appreciate and value um, what you've done to set an example for us to to think gospelly, think in terms of the gospel about what we're what we're seeing go on in our nation today. Uh, thanks for the time on the conversation. Really, always good to visit with you, and um, just to appreciate so deeply your ministry there in Amarillo, and and particularly uh, what you've offered to us in this work. Uh, friends, again, the uh, the work is entitled "Why Do the Nations Rage: The Demonic Origin of Nationalism" by David Ritchie. You can find it. Uh, online at your favorite book outlet, and we encourage you to to get a copy and and take a good, careful read of it. Uh, This is, um, as always, Denver Seminary's Engage 360. We're really honored that you would spend a few moments with us uh, every time we release a new episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can uh, email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. And if you are thinking about uh, seminary education at any level, whether it's a degree or a certificate, or you know somebody who uh, would love to uh, engage some higher education and theological studies, we'd love to have you visit our website. It's denverseminary.edu. And friends, we look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Take care.